Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from Nixon, made in 1995. Now here's your host, Jeff Cummings. The collaboration between Oliver Stone and John Williams created two great movies and two excellent scores. So when it came time for Williams to work on Stone's biopic of President Richard Nixon, he was most likely excited to join the project to see if they could make it three for three. Williams had created great music for biographical films about real people before this, including his two previous movies with Oliver Stone, as well as Schindler's List. And I guess you can also count Conrack as well. But Nixon would be different. It wasn't a straightforward presentation of Nixon's life, which would not be Stone's style. But it was so fractured that after viewing this movie, I'm sure Williams had trouble painting on the canvas that Stone presented to him. On the episode I did about the score to JFK with Brian Martell, you remember that we praised the editing and cinematography on that movie as groundbreaking and well-deserving of the accolades it received. Apparently, Oliver Stone wanted to keep that feel for Nixon as he tried to tell the story of a troubled man who never believed he did anything wrong and felt that the country was not on his side. Sound familiar? Anyway, it feels like you're watching the JFK movie again, but this time there doesn't seem to be a reason to do those dramatic editing cuts during a long scene other than to break up the monotony. And the film switches from color to black and white within a scene. I didn't get it. And I love Dutch angles in movies when it looks like the camera is tilted to give us a lopsided view of the scene, but it's too much here. And sometimes it'll shift from pristine color to grainy film stock as well without any rhyme or reason. Well, maybe Oliver Stone and his cinematographer Robert Richardson knew what they were doing, but the reasons were lost on me. The film belongs to Anthony Hopkins, who reportedly doubted his ability to effectively portray Richard Nixon every day on set. He threatened to quit many times, but his fellow actors always talked him down. I can't say whether or not Hopkins was the best choice to play Nixon, but I did sense sometimes that the Welsh-born Hopkins was trying very hard to speak in Nixon's distinctive voice. Nonetheless, I liked the performance he gave. And there are a lot of major actors floating in and out of this movie as well. What I like about Oliver Stone's movies is he doesn't stick with the same actors for all of his movies, which kind of helps to create the illusion of seeing characters on the screen and not the actors. In Nixon, James Woods was the only actor to have previously appeared in an Oliver Stone movie, starring in the 1986 film Salvador and getting an Oscar nomination for it. And at this point in Stone's career, every actor would want to be in anything Stone is working on. Nixon was the big breakthrough film for Joan Allen, who played First Lady Pat Nixon. Others had been doing well as character actors in movies for more than a decade, except for David Hyde Pierce, who appeared in Nixon just as the TV show Frasier was becoming a big hit. When you watch Nixon, the story is told mostly through flashbacks over the course of three and a half hours. In fact, there are two lengthy flashbacks. The first takes us to 1972 as he talks about the Watergate break-in. Then the next one goes way back to his childhood in California as he tries to break out of his doomed existence in Southern California. It's not really that difficult to follow, 
but certainly doesn't help someone like John Williams give the film structure through the music. But there was some good news for Williams as he approached the project. On JFK, he had to write the score before filming began due to time constraints, but on Nixon, he was able to see most of the film before he composed the music. However, there are not as many great standout musical cues in Nixon as there were in JFK or Born in the Fourth of July, and we have to blame Oliver Stone for that one. Stone said his work on Nixon was the most intense post-production session he'd ever experienced. He was constantly editing and re-editing scenes in fall 1995, not providing a final cut until just a month before the film opened Christmas week. Now what does that mean for John Williams? It means the scenes for which he's composing music might change often, and the music he wrote might be removed completely, or re-edited to sound a bit disjointed. When he provided Oliver Stone with music for JFK, at least music editor Ken Wanberg could wait until the final cut to really put the music together. That wasn't the case this time around. The mood of the score that Williams did write has a very different tone than his previous scores for Stone's films. It's very dark and rarely goes beyond low rumbles in the basis. There's a musical device he created in the score that he says was meant to convey the constant reminder of bombs dropped on Cambodia and Vietnam. In many of these scenes, you can hear these deep bass hits, not like the ones he made for JFK that were only there for dramatic effect. These are really low, and I do tend to understand the comparison to hearing a bomb hit the ground after being launched. The soundtrack to JFK had a very special feature on it when it was released in 1995. It had a video interview with John Williams on it about the score that you could play on your computer. He talked about the idea of musically hearkening to the bombings in Cambodia throughout the score. In the beginning of the film, as General Haig is approaching to have his meeting with an absolutely empty White House, the, in the foyer there of the White House, he comes up the steps and goes into the, to the private quarters of the president. And you have orchestral music that accompanies that very sinister kind of atmosphere in the music. But electronically, we've also produced some explosions which are kind of low-end, boom, this kind of thing where you almost don't hear it, but you feel it, which is like a kind of napalm recollection of something in Cambodia that perhaps hadn't even, ha hadn't even happened yet. It's a kind of pre-lap into the future, and it, I think it's, it can be very suggestive. You can hear those musical bombs dropping in the first true moment of underscore during the main titles, as we see Alexander Haig, Nixon's Secretary of State, arriving at the White House. It's made of mostly those low rumbles I mentioned earlier with strings playing chords that just don't sound right. And that's probably because this moment comes 18 months after the Watergate break-in, just when Nixon is really starting to unravel.
and then there's a lead up to a great statement on the brass instruments as the camera moves in through the gates to give us a shot of the White House. If you own the soundtrack to Nixon, you know about that first track called the 1960s, The Turbulent Years. Only the first 37 seconds of this track is used in the film. The rest of that track is essentially a concert suite of some of the main themes used in the movie. I'll talk about some of them a bit later, but let's just address the elephant in the room right now. There's a melody that appears in the film two or three times, and everyone who has heard the score or seen the film knows that it sounds very, very much like a relative of the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back. I think in some ways it might also be used to convey evil. But I think it's mostly used for moments when Nixon is at his strongest, flexing his political muscle, so to speak. Now I'm going to play the moment as it 
is heard in the concert suite where you can hear it in the trumpets. Yeah, it's very obvious. So one moment in the film score comes during discussion of Nixon's involvement in getting Castro out of Cuba when he was Eisenhower's vice president. But the big, bold statement comes when Nixon wins the Republican nomination for president in 1968. This is the highest point Nixon has ever been in his entire life, and that's why the theme is at its strongest.
My favorite theme in the film should be described as the family theme, often played in the flashback scenes to Nixon's childhood, though it does come up in other scenes that kind of have nothing to do with the Nixon family. It's developed early in the film when Mary Steenburgen, who plays Richard's mom and talks as if she's reading from the Bible, chastises Richard for lying. It really gets a big moment later as Richard's younger brother is dying from tuberculosis. It's played only on strings, and rightfully so, there is no optimism in it. The piano playing notes up the octave is an interesting touch. performance on strings really gets me in my gut. It's so mournful that you definitely feel the grief Richard is facing. Williams wrote a wonderful cue for the scene when Richard is talking to his older brother Harold, who was also dying of tuberculosis. That scene, as well as the scene that follows, lasts just a little more than three minutes, and the music Williams originally wrote for it can be heard in its entirety on the soundtrack. But in the final cut, no music plays while Richard is having his final moment with Harold. The music finally comes in for the next scene, but it's different music which ends with the family theme trying to get stronger as Richard finds the strength that will get him to the next scene at the 1968 Republican National Convention. Here's the lead up to the most powerful performance of the family theme which Williams wrote originally and would have played as an exhausted Harold rests his head on Richard's shoulder and transitions to a scene after the funeral.
You heard a lonely trumpet playing at the end there, and that was Tim Morrison back again for another Oliver Stone film. Since that music was not used in the film, Morrison's only appearance in the score as used in the film comes during a flashback of Richard and Pat falling in love in college. The cue starts with what I believe is the love theme for Richard and Pat, and it's played on the strings, and then we'll hear it later on the woodwinds at the end of the cue. The trumpet will play the film's main theme. So Morrison's trumpet was meant to convey sorrow and remorse in Born on the Fourth of July. In JFK, it was kind of a tribute to President Kennedy. In Nixon, it's played during a more innocent time, and we see young Richard and Pat falling in love and getting married, nothing but smiles on their faces. Those smiles aren't there very much during Nixon's political life, and that's why the quasi-love theme only plays a couple of times in the film. There are three other big musical moments in the film. And one of them comes when Nixon is visiting Texas to meet with wealthy donors. He's at the airport in Dallas, coincidentally on the day JFK will be shot not far away. 
The music for this lengthy cue starts in the previous scene when he's meeting with his wealthy donors, with synthesizers providing an ominous pulse under veiled discussions of these rich people maybe already planning Kennedy's assassination. The brass come in during a transition to Nixon arriving at the Dallas airport. and then some low piano hits when it's revealed that Nixon is at Dallas Love Field, the same airport JFK will arrive in later that day. In the film, a shot of Kennedy arriving in Dallas and then riding in the motorcade just before the fatal shots follows, accompanied by the drum cadence from JFK, a throwback that is understandable and kind of cool to include. I wonder whose idea it was to put that in. Most of the music in the film plays very quietly under dialogue-heavy scenes, and there are lots of scenes that rely on dialogue. Some of the scenes reuse the main title music, while others take music not composed by Williams. In the end credits, four companies are credited for supplying additional music, though there is no indication which music was used from them. One of the big dialogue-heavy scenes that got New Williams music and had the music featured quite prominently was the meeting with Mao Zedong, the leader of the People's Republic of China.
And Williams gives Nixon a great send-off during Nixon's farewell speech to his staff on the day of his resignation. I'm surprised Stone didn't film a scene recreating Nixon's resignation speech to the American public, but this speech to his staff is more powerful, especially with Williams' music. It's mostly tender and understated, with the piano starting things off before the strings play the main theme. And here comes the family theme before returning to the main theme. Once Nixon and his family exit the room, Williams brings back the music from the very start of the film. I have expected the quote-unquote evil theme to play, but I guess the plan was to let Nixon's last moments be triumphant and not portray the real reasons why he's leaving the White House.
There's more to the film when we see real footage of Bill Clinton eulogizing Nixon at his funeral before the burial at the family home in Whittier, where the Nixon Library now sits. Instead of original John Williams music, Oliver Stone put in the song Shenandoah over the end credits. It comes from the 19th century as a song that became popular when sailors would sing it as they fared down the Mississippi River. Now, I don't know what connection it would have to Richard Nixon, because he was born in California. Except maybe it's a song Stone thought would have been ideal to sing at Nixon's funeral as it tells of someone longing for a beautiful land far away that could be interpreted as heaven. Now, I've been to the Nixon Presidential Library, and it's quite stunning, and I recommend it to everyone. You'll be able to learn more about Nixon that wasn't portrayed in the film, including the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, and more about the historic trip to China, as well as ending the Vietnam War. It was a great presidency brought down by one tragically miscalculated moment. Now, until I went to his library, most of my knowledge of what Nixon did was about Watergate which was just a small but a very, very major blip. And speaking of Watergate, I almost forgot to talk about the scene conveying that famous break-in. It's not really shown much in the movie, not really at all, because we all pretty much know what happened. But there was a lot of music Williams wrote for the scene, or maybe some other scenes about that break-in and other shifty moments in Nixon's presidency. You'll remember from the JFK episode that I mentioned that Williams would reuse his conspirators theme from JFK and Nixon. But here's the thing. The music is never used in the film. I hadn't seen Nixon in probably 20 years, and I did not remember that this music was excluded. Why was it not included? I don't know. Perhaps the scenes which called for the music were dropped in those last-minute editing sections, or perhaps Stone decided to just keep out the music. But here's a taste of it for those of you who have never heard it.
Yes, you heard a bit of that evil theme. Very fitting for music of this type. It's sad that it isn't in the movie, though. So I don't really know what Oliver Stone was trying to do with the movie Nixon. Was the movie supposed to portray him as a hero because he ended the Vietnam War? Or was Oliver Stone trying to show him as a villain because he kept up the bombings for years despite public denouncement? Or was it something in between? Now, the public didn't seem to be interested in what Oliver Stone was trying to say. Nixon would only make $13 million from a $44 million budget. And I don't think it really had anything to do with the long running time. Because JFK was three hours and made more than $100 million. But Stone would rebound a few years later when he ventured away from politics and made Any Given Sunday a frenetic look at the world of professional football. And he also made the sequel to Wall Street, which was a big success. Despite the box office failure, Nixon was celebrated at the Academy Awards, receiving four nominations. Anthony Hopkins and Joan Allen were nominated for their acting, and Stone received another screenplay nomination with Stephen Revell and Christopher Wilkinson. And it was Williams' 25th Oscar nomination in the original score category, but it was a little bit different this year. In response to Alan Menken's numerous wins for original score for writing music for Disney musicals, the Motion Picture Academy decided to split the music category in two. One category was for original musicals and for scores written for comedies. The theory, I think, being that most musicals were essentially comedies. The other category was for scores written for dramatic films. Williams benefited from this category split, getting a nomination in the original dramatic score category for Nixon. Williams was not successful in getting an Oscar. His score to Nixon lost to the small Italian film Il Postino, a movie that was bought by the Weinstein Company and distributed in the United States. It's widely believed that the Weinstein spent a lot of money to get the five Oscar nominations for this small Il Postino film, and spent even more to get the late actor Massimo Troisi the Best Actor Oscar. That didn't happen, but Luis Enrique Bacaloff, a composer who at 62 years old was the same age as John Williams in 1996 when the Oscars happened, won his first original score, Oscar, 26 years after his first nomination. So Nixon was the final collaboration between Oliver Stone and John Williams. I don't think any future Stone films would have worked with the John Williams score. And when it came time for Stone to complete his President's Trilogy with a very bad movie about George W. Bush in 2008, Williams was on a break for film scores, so the possibility of Williams finishing out the trilogy wasn't going to happen. So, with that relationship ending, Williams established a connection with another top director for his next film. It had a ton of big-name stars making a modest movie that would get a modest score by John Williams. We'll learn more about the score to Sleepers on the next episode. And to whet your appetite, this score would make even more history for John Williams. It's been great talking about the score to Nixon, and I'm looking forward to continuing this journey on the next episode. Until then, everybody... The baton is down.